Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. The reason that a lot of us are timid and frankly, to use a biblical category, to be cowards before our generations because we care very much about what they think. And Jesus says, well, that's a natural thing. You should care what people think, but you ought to care a lot more about what God thinks. I know a lot of you think, I want to hear at the end of my life, well done, good and faithful servant. But I know that's not going to happen if I care more about what people think of me. When the Ethiopian official asked Philip to explain what he was reading from the prophet Isaiah, he immediately responded by being baptized. He was convinced that scripture is reliable. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Favares provides an important clarification about the reliability of the Bible and why you can confidently and courageously identify with Christ. I'm Dave Drewy. We're focusing on Acts chapter 8 and listening to Pastor Mike explain the controversy over this passage. And now, here's Pastor Mike Fabares with an eye-opening message called Courage to be Identified with Christ. I want you to look at this text with me in Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at the end of this chapter. We've been working through it. We've reached verse 36. And I want to show you the enthusiasm as you remember the context as Philip has been called into the chariot to explain the messianic overtones of Isaiah 53. And after it says there in verse number 35, Philip had opened his mouth beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, that he was reading. He told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. Verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotos, which is the Old Testament city of Ashdod. It's about 20 miles north from where they apparently were, about a half day's walk if you're hoofing it. And he passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he's moving up the Mediterranean coast to Caesarea where we find him several chapters later. Apparently he takes up residence there. That's about 55 miles further north than Ashdod or what was now called in the New Testament times uh, Azotos. I want to use this example that I do think takes probably more courage than we would imagine to say stop the chariots Uh, I've come to the realization that Jesus is the Christ. I recognize my need to be cleansed and washed, as the Old Testament prophet said in Ezekiel, from my sin to be made clean. I, I, I need that. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to follow the truth of the gospel of Christ. And he was willing to do that in front of all of his colleagues, in front of all of his servants, in front of all of those that were his bodyguards, all those who are guarding the treasure of the caravan and say, I'm going to go down into this water here with Philip and I'm going to be, I'm going to come out soaking wet. I'm going to take off my royal robes and I'm going to stand with Christ. Philip's going to be gone. I'm going to continue on into Northeastern Africa. And as the historians tell us, he had an impact there sharing the gospel among his national colleagues and made a difference for the missionary advance of the gospel in the continent. It's important for us 
I just put it down this way, if you're taking notes, number one, for us to be quick to identify with Christ. Because how quick can that be? He gets to the place of getting the good news, apparently responding well to the good news, and he says, I'm ready. Just think of how much this man had to lose to go back to Candace the queen of Ethiopia and say, hey, I'm a follower of Christ now. All the pagan religions of northeastern Africa, I reject those. I've been reading scripture. I've been going to Jerusalem and reading about the Jewish Messiah. I'm now a follower of the Jewish Messiah. That is an amazing claim for him to make, and it was going to cost him. We can only guess, and there's some speculation about what happened to this man, but, man, he's my hero, and he should be yours. If no one else is going to stand with me, I'm going to be there. I'm going to stand with Christ. I'm not going to wait to see how many people in my entourage are going to follow this Christianity thing. I'm going to follow Christ. That's a good thing, important thing. Back to our text. Look at verse 37. You have to be quick to identify with Christ, and I'm going to say this and then try to explain it to you. Number two, if you're taking notes, I have a little exclamation point next to verse 37. If you have the printed worksheet here or the digital worksheet, can you write this down? Be thankful for honest Bible translations. Be thankful for honest Bible translations. Well, what doesn't seem... Seem like I have an honest Bible translation because I know what number comes after 36 and it ain't 38. There's a 37 in there somewhere and it's missing. If this doesn't worry anyone, I wouldn't talk about it. But it worries some people. So let's talk about it. Let me say a few things. Number one, though I use the word Bible translation because we're all sitting there with a book we call a Bible translation and that's the way we talk about it in the parlance of English and our idioms in Bible translation. Can I say this about why verse 37 is not in your Bible? It is not a translation issue. This is not a translation issue. This is not a translation issue. Let me try and say this clearly. This is not a translation issue. (laughs) Translation, you know what translation is? When I take one language and I turn it into another language, right? That's translation. And translation issues may be, you know, an issue of whether you call something to dunk or submerge versus baptizo and transliterate it. That's a translation issue. This is not a translation issue. This is what we call a transmission issue. It has nothing to do with your car, but a transmission. How did this text transmit its way in the original language of the Greek New Testament to where then we translate it? Because someone's got to translate Acts chapter 8, and so I'm looking at how do I get from what I have in front of me in the Greek New Testament, translate it one time into English. Well, how did I have this text that either has verse 37 or it doesn't? That's a transmission issue. If it's a transmission problem, an issue, then it's not really an issue about uh, the mechanics or software or coding. It's about the people that did it, and the people that did it are human beings, and they're called copyists, or if they were really professional at it, they were called scribes, and they had to copy these things by hand because Kinko's was just getting going back then. So they had no way to do this but by hand. So that's the issue. What happened with the copyists? What happened with the scribes? Example, I leave church, get in my car, get hit by a bus. I'm not dead, mostly dead, not fully dead. A lot of things inside are dying. My head's still good, my right arm's still good. I get put in the hospital, and I, they tell me, you only, got, you only got a day to live. You're going to be dead, you're dead by the end of the day. So I say, well, you know, I don't have any grandkids yet, so it'd be a good thing for me. I'm going to write a little note to all my grandkids. So I take out a yellow steno pad, I take out my pen, and I write by hand. Other arms all messed up, insides dying, but my brain's working. And I write out a, a full page to my grandkids. I write, I don't know, full page. It's, it's like, I don't know, 39 sentences of stuff. 
and I tear it off and I give it to my wife. I say, go take it to the waiting room where my, where my kids are. I got three kids. Go take it to my waiting room there and let them have it and let them get it one day to my grandkids. She goes down there. None of my kids showed up except for one. My oldest is there. <laughs> Others are too busy. My oldest, Matt, is there and he goes, oh man, a letter from, from dad. I need to uh, make a copy of this for my brother and my sister. So he starts to make a copy of the letter that I make. I'm going to keep one and got no uh, copy machine around. And so I'm just going to sit here. I got hours to kill anyway. Dad's in the other room dying. So I'm going to write down what dad wrote. So he makes a copy by hand. He gets down in this thing almost to the end. I don't know, like 36 sentences in. And he says, you know, um, what dad is saying here in this part of it and what he says next, I mean, there's a logical step here in between and I know what he means. And so I'm just gonna put a little note in the margin here as to what dad is saying to my grandkids. And so he puts a little note in the margin and then he finishes up the copy. He takes the copy and says, hey mom, can you run this to my brother? He's out on the golf course. So can he, he, so mom goes, my wife goes and finds my middle kid and John is out on the golf course and he gets this and he goes, oh man, it's the copy that, that Matthew made. And he goes, man, this seems important. So when I'm done playing golf, I'm going to check it out. So he gets into the clubhouse, he sits down, gets his iced tea and he looks at this and he goes, man, I need to make a copy of this for my sister. So he starts to make a copy and he makes this copy and he gets to this statement that's in the margin by his brother and he goes, man, that's, a, that's an important thing. It does help clarify what, what dad is saying here. So he takes that as he's copying and he adds what's in the margin and he puts it in the middle of this, of this page that he's writing out by hand. And so now I don't have any longer, I don't have 39 sentences, now I have 40 sentences because he added a sentence between the 36th sentence and the 37th sentence and now he says, oh, there it is. I'm gonna take this to my sister. So he goes and brings it to the house where his sister is and Stephanie's there and she gets it and she goes, oh, let's check this out. So she starts reading it. She goes, I'm gonna make a copy for my grandkids. I don't have any kids yet, but I'm gonna do that, get ready. And as she's going through it, she gets to that 37th sentence. She goes, that doesn't sound like dad. And so she says, um, I'm gonna text my brothers. Hey, can you send me a picture of the, of the, of the copies that you made of this? Can you do that? And so they do. And so when she gets Matthew's picture to her phone, she sees that that sentence that she didn't think quite matched the vocabulary of, of dad, she sees that it was in the margin of Matthew's first copy. And she goes, oh, see there? Not even in his handwriting. Didn't even belong there. Here's the problem. Her brother in the clubhouse is such a careful guy. He's thinking, this letter is so important. And I know my kids are going to want to recite it and they're going to want to memorize it and meditate on it. I'm going to give all of these sentences numbers and he numbers them. And because he's incorporated that statement in the margin of his brother, he's now got 40 numbers, one through 40 sentences that are to the grandkids. Stephanie's got that, but the copy she's got are all numbered. She's verified now. That is not dad's writing. That's Matthew's clarification. So she goes and scratches a line through the 37th sentence, and then takes it and hands it to her eventual grandchildren. And they go, conspiracy, right? <laughs> My mom, Stephanie, is trying to truncate the message from grandpa. 
And Stephanie goes, no, I wasn't. Matter of fact, I was trying to get you an accurate picture of what grandpa said. There's my dumb illustration. Let's, let's identify the players. Let's identify Matthew. Who is Matthew in this illustration? Matthew is someone way out, picture Israel here, Africa down here, We've got modern day Turkey, and then way over here we got Italy. Matthew is someone over here in Italy, out in the West, who says it'd be really good to have a clarification because if you read this text, it kind of needs a clarification or at least it begs for a clarification or you can see why a clarification would be helpful. Let's look at the text again, verse 36. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 8. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. What's missing here, friends? What happened? Did he get, did he, did he repent? Of, of course he repented. Philip, he, he knows this. He's done this. He's, he's been an evangelist from the beginning of the chapter. He sat in Peter's preaching. He's listened to Peter preach. He knows what the gospel is. He knows what Jesus taught about you got to repent, right? You got to repent, put your trust in Christ. So that happened. Now, if someone's looking at this text, they're going to go, well, it'd be helpful just to have that peace there. As a matter of fact, I, every time I preach to you, I start by looking at the text, reading the text over and over, looking at the original languages, and I take that text, and one thing I try to do in my study early on is I just write one sentence summary of everything that's in it, just an encapsulated summary. And you know what I wanted really bad? Because really, what, when I look at this historically, I'm saying, well, here's a passage about what? Here's a passage about the eunuch wanting to be baptized and Philip baptizes him and then he goes on and does more evangelism. And what I really want to say is, hey, the big deal is he got saved. I want that. I want to show that. So someone out west in about three Greek manuscripts from the sixth century forward, they put that clarification in. It was reflected in old translations and revisions of, of the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Bible, both in Old Testament and New Testament. And in a late edition of Jerome, who was the, the man who translated it, was known for doing this back in the fourth century, there was a edition of this. As best we can tell, there was an edition of it. Why? Because we don't have it anywhere else. We, we've got a few scant references. Irenaeus was a second century church leader, pastor, and he wrote a, a, a letter called Against Heresies. And in that statement, he recalls the Ethiopian eunuch getting saved. And just like I said, there's no mention of him being saved. Well, he states the scene and talks about him being saved and calling on Jesus as the son of God. Perhaps Irenaeus and Cyprian followed and the biographer of Cyprian right after Cyprian in the next century, he also discusses that and this word of him calling out on Christ and believing with all of his heart is there. And perhaps from the second, third century, this ends up in the West with a clarification way out here in Italy in the West. And so we have just a few manuscripts and the Latin Vulgate revision, edition of that, late edition, we have that statement. So who's Matthew? I don't know, some dudes out in the Western world who put this clarification in perhaps influenced by Irenaeus's depiction and Cyprian's depiction of what happened. Which, of course, it's begging for that. Who is John? Well, two people are John. John is, first of all, Erasmus. 
Erasmus and Stephanus. Let's talk about Erasmus. Erasmus, in, working in Cambridge in the 1500s, comes up with a critical, what we call a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which is him taking some, I like to say all, but it wasn't all. It was, it was a few basic New Testament Greek manuscripts that were found. That Of course, there's plenty of them around, but he had a certain select group of them that he based a critical edition of the New Testament on, which means he was pulling these together and saying, let's reconstruct the original. Why? Because we don't have the negatives. I'm looking at all the scanned pictures and I'm putting together a picture of the Greek New Testament and I'll put some footnotes here. And so, so Erasmus does that work. It's decent work. But the decision that he made, even in a comment that he makes, is I just think this is an oversight of the copyists. He had no Greek text that had this reading at that time. He didn't have those few Western texts, but he had the Vulgate and he had the late edition of the Vulgate that had this reading in it. Later, by the way, he, he reflected on it after he published it and said, I don't think I should have added that. Nevertheless, it was in the 1500s, the critical edition of the Greek New Testament that Erasmus did. So John is Erasmus putting it in the main text. And then Stephanus is John again, because Stephanus is the guy in 1551 who put the verse numbers in. So the verse numbers were put in on the critical text of the Greek New Testament and other subsequent text that was the first numbering system that actually caught on. So they put 40 verses in Acts chapter 8. So Stephanus and Erasmus or John saying, I'm going to number these and put this from the margin into the middle of it. Well, who's Stephanie? Every basic scholar since. Are there people that will argue it? Sure. Find them on YouTube. <laughs> the reliable source of truth in the world. But most people with degrees who sit around and do this work, and I have plenty of source material, at least electronically available, do the work myself, and I come to the same conclusion everyone else has come to, that Stephanie has come to, and that is, if I compare all the available resources, which are way more than Erasmus, way more than, I mean, we have, a, we have a plethora of witnesses to the Greek New Testament, and even the ancient man, uh, translations, I'm going to say there was only 39 verses. So I'm stuck now with a critical edition of the Greek New Testament that was based on the Vulgate and a marginal reading in Greek manuscripts that were way out west, and that was then numbered by Stephanus, and then we're stuck with Stephanie, which is every modern translation, putting a line through it and saying, well, wait a minute, that wasn't original. And why? Not only because the oldest manuscripts don't have it, but the majority of manuscripts don't have it, which by the way, let's go another level real quick. If you were exposed to the King James only people, which basically say, we take a snapshot of what we got after a few revisions of the King James that started in 1611, but what they're carrying around is several versions later. I'm going to say everything is to be judged by that. And if it doesn't exist in the 1811, what they say, 1611, if it doesn't exist in the King James Bible, then I'm saying you're taking it out. And if you're taking it out, you must be demonic, right? You're filled with Satan. So you are taking verses out of the Bible. And if you judge everything by that, then you're right. But see, the King James and the Geneva Bible and Tyndale's version were all based on Erasmus's critical Greek New Testament. Therefore, right, everyone is looking at that King James Bible going, oh, they took it out. Now, if you have a new King James you're here this morning or a King James Bible, you go, ma, it's in mine. <laughs> right? Well, it's in yours. I get that. The question is, did Luke write that? And I'm saying, no, Irenaeus, Cyprian, I think, put this concept, these words into his mouth, and then it became, it got picked up in a few manuscripts late over here in the Western manuscript family. 
There's a whole set of manuscripts in the Byzantine, this middle Greek-speaking area. And most people say, well, I believe in the King James because it has the majority of texts. Well, it does have the majority of texts because they were late because it was the one region of the world that kept speaking Greek. But guess what verse does not exist in the Byzantine or majority text? Verse 38, doesn't exist. So, what? 37, verse 38 does exist. <laughs> verse 37, thank you. And that may be too much information. It was too much information a long time ago, Pastor Mike. Okay. <laughs> Listen, if you are bored by this, then someone hadn't come into your office or into your world and said, you have a demonic Bible. I've had plenty of people tell me that. I've had them in my office, two on one, Bible's on the desk. One's the word of God, one's not. One's got verses, one doesn't. Yours is taking it out. 17 examples in modern translations that don't have verses. And all I'm telling you is that, well, most of them are conflations from the Byzantine text family. I am saying here's an exception of one that is not even a conflation. It's a marginal reading from late Western texts. And I'm saying if you don't have verse 37 in your Bible, you should thank God for honest translators because the translators are basing this translation work on the best available, most logical and supportable critical Greek New Testament. And every modern critical Greek New Testament is totally transparent about the problem. That's why I have all these footnotes at the bottom. It's called apparatus. And trust me, it feels like apparatus. It's hard stuff to work through, but all of it is trying to help us figure out why verse 37 didn't exist. We didn't even have verses in our Bibles until 1551. And that numbering system was based on that utilized Erasmus's decisions. Erasmus even regretted the decision about this particular text, so it goes. And there's why we should be thankful that there's honest scholars. Now, that's the hard explanation. Guess what a lot of people like? Simple explanations. You know what the simple explanation? King James Bible had it. You're doesn't. I'm right. You're wrong. Okay. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't argue with you then, right? I'm sorry. Some things need complicated explanation because it's a complicated thing to get from the negative to the photo in your phone. Thanks, Pastor Mike. It's important to understand how we got the scriptures and address some of the questions people ask about the reliability of the Bible. You're listening to Focal Point, and today your Bible teacher, Pastor Mike Fabares, is giving us practical reasons for our courage to be identified with Christ. We're learning how important it is to have answers to the questions people have about God and the Bible. So we've made it easy for you to find the answers on the Focal Point app and online at focalpointradio.org. You can listen to sermons, read devotionals, and search Ask Pastor Mike archives when you download the Focal Point app or go to focalpointradio.org. It's our mission here at Focal Point to accurately teach the scriptures, verse by verse, so that people can hear the life-changing truth of the gospel. And the Bible is filled with stories about ordinary people whose lives were transformed by the gospel. Reading about these changed lives is a great way to reinforce your faith and share the good news with friends and family. So this month, when you give to support the ministry of Focal Point, we'll send you a compelling collection of A.W. Tozer's classic sermons titled, Men Who Met God. It's a survey of seven biblical figures who had the tremendous experience of walking and communicating with God. And it's our gift to you when you give to Focal Point. Get in touch today by calling 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. And if you've never contacted us before, please get in touch and we'll send you this month's free gift 
a helpful pamphlet about the Twelve Disciples. These were twelve regular guys whose lives were changed when they accepted the invitation to follow Jesus. Find out more when you call 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. When it comes to prayer, some Christians say we should always take a position of authority, declaring things in the name of Christ. But is that a biblical standpoint? I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you back to listen tomorrow when Pastor Mike Fabares presents a balanced and biblical view of our role in prayer. That's coming up on Ask Pastor Mike, Friday, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. I pray today's message will help you live out your faith with truth and love. After all, that's the kind of biblical faith that changes lives and transforms a crooked culture. But if you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, then I'd like to invite you to get in touch. We'd love to pray with you and help you discover God's plan of salvation. Visit focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.